Hello and welcome to another Voice of Wealth podcast. I'm Charlotte de Capoisson. Last July, we did a special podcast on the real estate market. Today, we are going to address the housing segment. I'm joined by Ed Shing, Global CIO of BNP Paribas Wealth Management. Hello, Ed. Hello. First of all, what do you see as the main structural drivers of housing today? There are several, Charlotte. Let's go through a few of them. Supply and demand are the obvious drivers. Uh, in terms of demand, that tends to be driven by the formation of households. So how quickly are the number of households growing? And the answer is, despite the fact that we have aging populations, the number of households are growing quite, quite quickly because, firstly, people are living longer. Secondly, people are getting married later. And the number of people per household in the Western world has gone down structurally over decades. So what that means is, even without a greater population, we actually have more households that need to be housed in separate uh, buildings or separate uh, apartments or houses. So that's the demand side, which is definitely seeing structural demand growth. The supply side is, of course, the building. Now, the biggest impact here has been on social housing, which has seen a slowdown in building over the last few decades in a number of countries. So we actually end up, if you look at supply and demand, with a shortage of housing. So France, the US or the UK are all housing markets with a pronounced shortage of housing stock. So that is one driver pushing prices up on a fundamental long-term basis. And the second big, big driver, of course, is financing. It's cheaper today to finance with a mortgage in any of these countries than it has been in decades past. So that, of course, increases affordability, which in turn pushes up house prices because people can afford more, they tend to pay more. Yes, as you say, a big driver of the housing segment is the very favourable financial and economic conditions in many countries, such as fixed-term mortgage rates, low inflation, leading to very low interest rates. All these factors increase affordability. Moreover, investors have shunned bonds because of the stubbornly low yields and are turning to real estate. So that's another driver helping momentum in the market. In America, despite the deepest downturn since the Depression, the housing market is booming up an annual rate of 13%, according to the Case-Shiller National House Price Index. But as the overall financial and economic environment is set to change, Ed, don't you think this will have a negative effect on the residential market? And in the worst case scenario, could we be headed for a crash in the market? I think there are two main drivers here. Firstly, you have interest rates. If interest rates go up, that of course, makes affordability worse, which is then a drag on the housing market and on housing prices. But I don't really see a big increase in interest rates around the corner, either in short-term rates or indeed in long-term bond yields, which drive fixed-term mortgage rates. Both of these, I think, will remain very low in years to come. Then you talk about the economy and recession, because recession tends to push up unemployment And that makes it much more difficult to finance mortgages. If people don't have a job, how can they finance their mortgage payments? And on top of that, people become a lot more cautious during recession, as you would expect. They tend to save and they tend not to want to make big purchase decisions such as buying a house. So recession is the biggest driver. But we've just come out of recession last year. And we certainly are not forecasting another recession around the corner or indeed any time soon. We know that extended lockdowns have had a huge impact on the housing segment, with homeowners moving further out into leafy suburbs or fleeing the city altogether to enjoy more indoor and outdoor space. 
An estate agent in England recently told me that over a million Londoners had moved out of the capital during the first year of the pandemic. But despite the economic fallout of COVID-19, the housing market has performed pretty well. What is the trade-off between having more indoor and outdoor space and adding to the commute time? The first driver is indeed the commute time. Now, if you're doing hybrid working or remote working, you're not commuting to your workplace, to your office, five days a week. If you're doing it one, two, or even three days a week, then of course you have more flexibility. You can extend the commute time potentially because you're not doing it every day anymore. So your overall commute time may not change, but the commute time each time you commute can be a bit longer. And there is a trade-off because of course, if you're working from home, you're spending more time at home. And so you want that home environment to be better and more spacious, maybe to give yourself space for study, as well as, as you said, give yourself some outdoor space, because I think outdoor space is very important for psychological well-being. There are a lot of very positive effects coming from being outdoors. Mm -hmm. So I think that is very, very important. But again, there is the sort of buying versus renting. You lose convenience by being further away. Young people may prefer to be in the city center because they want the life, whereas people with families, with children may want to be a bit more out in the sticks to get that space, maybe to be closer to good schools. So there, there are various different drivers. And at the moment, maybe because of COVID, that there has been a driver more towards the suburbs and away from city centres. But these things come and go in waves. And most people would still consider the purchase of a home as a long-term investment. But the cost of financing is colossal, especially for first-time buyers who are not on the property ladder. Since the global financial crisis, banks and mortgage lenders have become stricter in approving loans. Furthermore, because of rising house prices, the duration of loans in some countries can be as long as 30 years. Did you know, Ed, that the price of an apartment in the Paris region soared by a whopping 361% between 1996 and 2020? Uh, do you think the attachment to bricks and mortar is really going to last? I mean, don't you think the market has been hot for so long that, frankly, it would be better to wait for a downturn before making any new investments? You can always say that, Charlotte, but the problem you have is that buying a house is not a purely financial decision. You may need more space. You may have a growing family. You may have just changed jobs. You may need to move nearer to the job. There are lots of other reasons, not to mention the psychological and emotional reasons for buying a house or a flat. So one has to bear those in mind. Secondly, waiting for a downturn can be a very expensive occupation because they don't come along all that often. Generally, over time, the housing market has increased in price, at least in line with inflation. So again, you could be waiting for a number of years before buying if you were to take that attitude and by which point house prices could be a lot higher. So it's always difficult. What I would say is I think a lot of the good news from lower financing costs and from extending the duration of mortgages is already in the price. So I don't expect house prices to be turbocharged in the way that they have been over the last 12 months going forward. At the very best, we can expect a much more leisurely pace of house price appreciation. And apart from investing in one's home, what other investment opportunities does the housing segment offer? You've mentioned buy-to-let, so that is one possibility because bond yields and cash rates being at zero or even negative in Europe make alternative forms of income very attractive, and buy-to-let is one of those. However, buy-to-let has become less tax advantageous in a number of countries, such as the UK, first of all, so it may be less interesting in some cases. Do not forget it is not a worry-free investment either. You do have to maintain the property. You do have risks with tenants or in, indeed with the property lying empty and therefore not generating income, but still costing you money because there are associated maintenance and tax costs. There are a number of risks involved 
It is a long-term investment as well. There are, of course, are friction costs when you buy and sell. It costs up to 6 7% of the total purchase price. So that also is another expense one has to factor in. Indirect ways of investing in residential property can include, for instance, real estate investment trusts, such as exist in Germany, which invests in blocks of flats effectively in cities, rent them out, and then you can buy into those by buying shares in those companies and benefit from the income yield that they generate. You can also invest indirectly in the housing market via buying shares of house builders, building materials companies that produce, for instance, cement, bricks, tiles, or plumbing supplies. Or you can even buy DIY retailers because, again, when people buy a house, then they tend to fit out the house. They tend to change the house and maybe buy new furniture, new carpets or flooring. Uh, they may do all sorts of other projects which are good for DIY retailer revenues. So those are some of the ways one can invest directly or indirectly in residential property. To subscribe to our weekly podcast, search for BNP Paribas Wealth on the podcast platform of your choice, such as Apple Podcast, Podcast Addict, Spotify or other podcast providers. And to see all of our research, Google BNP Paribas Wealth. <laughs>